Hello, Brendan Francis Noonan here. Along with Rico Galliano. And hey, we know you have already supported the show with a financial contribution via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. Yeah, thanks. But some people haven't, so this message is for them. Yeah, since you've already donated, please just continue feeling good about yourself for a second while we ask other listeners to chip in. Other listeners, we know that you're busy that you are tired of public radio types whining for dollars, and that many of you have already skipped ahead in this podcast. That is true. Now, you other listeners might think it's easy to interview smart, creative people, eat great food, and get every new book, TV show, and movie sent to you for free. And we're here to tell you, you're actually right. But paying for everything else is not. Our bandwidth costs money, for instance. Our equipment costs money. Driving all over the place to meet all these smart, cool people is costing ever larger amounts of money, other listeners. Lots of money, other listeners. If you want to keep this dinner party going, please support us by contributing perhaps the cost of a bottle of wine. Only appropriate for a dinner party. Yes, by going to dinnerpartydownload.org and clicking the yellow button that says donate. Thanks, and apologies to you, the decent, moral, thoughtful person who already donated. You rule. And now, here's the show. Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. All right, so here's here's a joke. What does Spider-Man write his poetry on? What? His web page. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM, American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Kevin Barnes, frontman for the band of Montreal. Yes. That'll help break the ice. They're on tour right now. Later, we'll talk to author Rick Moody. He's got a new collection of music essays called On Celestial Music. Which makes me think of harps. That's right. Harps playing Captain Beefheart, according to him. Oh, that makes me think of insane harpists. Weird harpists. Uh, also coming up, Grammy winner Esperanza Spalding, comedian Moshe Kasher, Escargot Caviar, and Tan Lines. But first, the news. Except you know what? This is a podcast. Let's skip the news. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Welcome to The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. Coming up, Grammy-winning jazz musician Esperanza Spalding. She released a new album this week called Radio Music Society. She's here with a dinner party soundtrack that can complement or override your guests' chatter. Maybe you need a break from everybody's, you know, conversation. If it seemed to be swirling into, like, pseudo-philosophizing... I don't know. Without pseudo-philosophizing, my dinner parties would be absolutely silent. I'd have so, nothing to say. That's <laughs> uh, Also coming up, we learn about Willie Moscone, one of history's greatest pool sharks. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. As gas prices near record highs across the country, President Obama set off on a four-state energy blitz. Mitt Romney's big win in the Illinois primary. Well, the wait is finally over. The highly anticipated film The Hunger Games is in theaters today. Now for something you might not have heard. We are speaking with Madeline Brand. She is the host of The Madeline Brand Show, which can be heard every weekday morning on KPCC in Los Angeles. Madeline, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Well. I came across this little gem. Nokia, the telecommunications company, has decided it needs to get hip. Mm. And (laughs) yeah, I know. So that's always not a good idea when a big (laughs) company (laughs) wants to be hip. So basically, what they did is they patented a tattoo you can get that when someone calls you, your tattoo starts to itch. So, what? in other words, I know it sounds kind of out there. What madman so, came up with that idea? <laughs> I know someone, what. Someone in Finland whose company is losing market share. Exactly. And so they're thinking, let's try to wean these hipsters off iPhones. So I think Nokia is following in the tradition of tattoos and doing this just for attention. Right? <laughs> there because, you go. Exactly. Because who really wants this? <laughs> it makes you itch. It's like having phone generated bed bugs. Great. Well, right. So you'd, you'd think maybe it should be something really nice, like a like a massage. Yeah. Like a little tickle. And tingle. (laughs) Um, Would you also be able to detect tattoos with your phone? Like if your children came home, could you check to see if they had tattoos to see if they start itching? So you'd make a phone call to them and see if they start... Frantically scratching themselves. Jumping around. Mom's calling somebody right now. Oh, looks like mom's calling your arm. (laughs) You're grounded. 
It's like having poison <laughs> ivy embedded in your skin. Awesome. Somehow I don't think that's going to catch on. Yeah, Nokia, it's, it's, a, it's a call for help. You're going to have this patent removed in several decades, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, a man. call for help? A call for help? Oh, no, the puns. Mm. Let's get out of here. Madeline Brand, thanks for the small talk. <laughs> My pleasure. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our sweet yet slightly hoppy history lesson with booze. First, the history part. This week back in 1954, Willie Moscone performed his most enduring feat of skill. Now, most folks at your dinner party will have no idea who he was. Thanks to our friend Michelle Philippi, you're about to. Willie Moscone didn't have a typical childhood. He was born in Philadelphia and lived in an apartment above the family business, a billiards hall. Even as a kid, he loved pool. But his dad, an ex-prize fighter, tried to keep him away from the game. He wanted his son to become something respectable, you know, like a vaudeville dancer. But Willie practiced pool in secret and got pretty good. So good, his dad relented and posted ads daring grown-ups to try and beat his kid in a match. Young Willie regularly triumphed over players with way more experience, even though he had to stand on a box to reach the table. Eventually, Willie played an exhibition match against the reigning world champion. The kid lost, but the match was a sensation, and it launched Willie's career as a pro player. He was six years old. And with this familiar face, I'm sure I don't have to tell you that our first guest is the brilliant pocket billiard champion of the world, Willie Moscone. Willie grew up to win 15 world championships. He'd go on TV shows like I've Got a Secret and demonstrate trick shots. I placed six balls out here. Do you think you can uh, get rid of them in six shots? I'll get rid of them in one. One? One. Here they go. But on March 19, 1954, Willie pulled a trick like none other. At an exhibition match, he beat his opponent by sinking 200 balls in a row, then decided to rack up again and keep shooting. By the time he finally missed, he'd sunk 526 balls. It's still the world's record, almost 60 years later. There's no film of the feat, just a notarized affidavit from 35 witnesses who watched it happen. It's archived at the Smithsonian, but you can still watch Willie's work on film. In the pool movie classic, The Hustler, every time there's a close-up of Paul Newman's hands, those are actually Willie's, sinking shot after shot. So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for a cocktail to go along with it. We are joined by David Strauss. He is a bartender at the Ransted Room in Philadelphia, which is where Willie Moscone is from. David, what cocktail did Willie's story inspire you to make? Uh, the cocktail I came up with um, based on the history was a drink that I'm calling the Smoke and Honey. Interesting. What? What? Why the Smoke and Honey? Well, reading, reading the history of the story and the time period that it took place in, uh, made me think of old billiard halls, pool players, and jazz musicians, and uh, the drink of choice. Um, in their younger days, it was a scotch neat, and uh, as they got older and, uh, you know, their bodies kind of deteriorated from the abuse, they usually found ways to mask the scotch so they could still get it into their system. I know the jazz musicians used to use milk and honey. Oh, that's interesting. Well, it seems like Moscone never flagged in his abilities, but maybe this was the secret. Maybe he adjusted his drink intake. That's quite possible. All right, well, cool. Well, tell me what's in your drink. Uh, we start with fresh lemon juice at three-quarters of an ounce, okay. um, and then we match that with three-quarters of an ounce of honey syrup, which is three parts of honey to one part of water. Um, and then it's um, 1.75 ounces of blended scotch whiskey. Um, for this one, I used Famous Grouse. Okay. And then a quarter ounce of smoky peat scotch, and in this case, I used Laphroaig. So, uh, David, are you a native of Philadelphia? I'm actually not. I'm, I'm a native New Yorker. Okay, because I'm a native of Philadelphia, and I'd never heard of Willie Moscone. You know, I know of Rocky, I know of Mike Schmidt, and some other Philly greats. And I'm wondering if it's because he is just so good at what he does, and Philly is so fond of the underdog that, you know, maybe uh, he just doesn't hold as high a place in Philly's hearts. We don't know how to handle such success. I think I would agree with that. <laughs> Very diplomatic of you, Dave. <laughs> Thank you. 
So Rico, I just have to reiterate, guys would mix scotch yeah. with milk. <laughs> I okay. know. That's like one of the few ways I can think of to take a pool expert and make him seem, you know, uncool. I know. <laughs> it's the uh, although that image does stick in the mind. It's like it's like a whiskey milkshake or something. Oh yeah. Or yeah. or a single malt perhaps. Oh <laughs> no. We should note, by the way, that Willie was known to be a pretty clean living guy, actually. so It's true. Uh, people, as always, we do have the recipe for this week's cocktail at our website, though, where you will also find all our other recipes, most of them quite sophisticated. Most of them. Yes. The address is dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today our guest is multi-instrumentalist and jazz musician Esperanza Spaulding. Last year she won a Grammy for Best New Artist, to the consternation of Bieber fans everywhere. She also sang a gorgeous rendition of What a Wonderful World at this year's Academy Awards. This week she released her second album, Radio Music Society. Here's a clip from the first single. Hold your head as high as you can, high enough to see who you are, little man. Life sometimes is cold and cruel, maybe no one else will tell you, so remember that you are black gold, black gold, you are black gold. Esperanza Spaulding, that song's called Black Gold. Yes. A few months back, she stopped by our show and suggested a few songs for a dinner party soundtrack, and here they are. I'm Esperanza Spaulding, and this will be my dinner party soundtrack. I will put on Aka Seca Trio. I like music with a little bit of tension in it, you know? But that music is laid back enough that it wouldn't, like, dominate the sonic space of a room yet. To me, there's enough quirkiness in the beauty that it still makes it like an interesting contribution, you know. Let's say you could listen to, I, I like this band Little Dragon. There's a song called Twice, but see that's not good dinner music because I think if you put that on, everybody would start talking and listen to it. Twice I turn my back on you. Maybe you need a break from everybody's, you know, conversation. If it seemed to be swirling into like pseudo philosophizing, you could put on Little Dragon. Was it the light waves? So frightening? Was it a two? Another good record that would be good for dinner is you could put on some Jackie Byard on the spot. That's a great record. And I think Spanish Tingle would be a good song. <laughs> It's a different song. Oh, I know. I have my. I, I was just listening to it on the plane. It's a different song where Jackie Byard's playing alto saxophone, and I was just realizing yesterday he's one of my favorite saxophone players. Wow, he's an amazing saxophone. Okay, let's see. The song that I was thinking of is called "Toodaloo Toodaloo." I don't know. It depends on the kind of dinner party, but you know. I, I'm seeing friends that I know already, and we're sitting around talking about something humorous or mildly poking fun at intellectualism, you know. So that's what our dinner parties usually are. So something like Jackie Byard, that would just bring the energy up. As a musician, he's such a master, but there's such a childishness about the music. It's almost like funny, but then of course, I mean, it's masterful. A dinner party soundtrack from Esperanza Spalding, her new album Radio Music Society, just came out this week. And Brendan, something tells me her dinner parties 
are a little cooler than our dinner party. You know, Rico, look, just because someone's talented, stylish, and admired uh-huh. does not mean that everything in their life's amazing. Yeah. So I've heard. I, I wouldn't know <laughs> myself. Uh, I think. We're going to take a break, folks. Coming up, Manhattan's premier concierge asked the question you should ask yourself in every situation. What's the objective, and how do you do it with class, with finesse, and no trail of blood behind you? Bloodless etiquette when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Coming up, comedian Moshe Kasher reads from his new memoir called <clears throat> Kasher in the Rye. My word. Yeah, and later <laughs> science journalist Jonah Lehrer tells us where creativity comes from. From a part of the brain called the superior interior temporal gyrus. Huh. That's the Creative Muse's maiden name. Interesting. Not a lot of people know that. But first, it's time for our etiquette segment. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave. And here with us to answer those questions this week is Michael Fazio. He is a partner in the firm Abigail Michaels Concierge, which provides concierge service to thousands of top hotels and condos. His book, Concierge Confidential, just recently came out in paperback. In it, he details his exploits, meeting his clients every crazy need which makes him an expert in being polite. Michael, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. I love the intro of teaching people how to behave. That, that is right. Yeah. It's charm school. I mean, being a concierge, you're just begging to be confronted with people at their most selfish and demanding, it feels like. What compelled you to want to make it your career? I'm Catholic. and <laughs> <laughs> there You're you already a concierge for the Lord. <laughs> right. Well, I, I think that really good, really good people in service, especially in, in, as concierge, you have to be a little tiny bit of a validation junkie because um. basically what we live for is like people coming up and kind of putting their faith in us like can you do this we mm, want yeah. so badly you know it's kind of like pavlovian like you know they'll give me a treat they'll give <laughs> yeah. me a 20 if i do it and it, then it becomes <laughs> we do the dirty work these people come to me and they want access to things that you know quite frankly they're not on the list to belong to so it's my job to uh-huh. then sell them into it so, you know, it's a lot of charm. Michael, that was a really good answer. You, you did re- I, we really right. appreciate Here's that Here's a answer. 20, Michael. Thank you so much. <laughs> did, that was, I mean, I don't know how we would have had that answer without you. But this is, this is how <laughs> sick I am. No, it really wasn't my best. Please, l- l- let me try again. Here's your 20, and here's 10 of my own for wasting your time. Uh, I can feel the stress in that job where it's just basically like every moment. Well, you know, it's just, it's fun. Every single request is a balancing act of charm, etiquette, um, patience, an ability to fight the urge to laugh. (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of that, actually, that kind of leads to our first question from our audience, tailored for you, which is, uh, what is the most bizarre request you've ever had? Ask Chris. Chris via Facebook. Hello, Chris. Um, You know, it's funny. (laughs) People ask me this all of the time. So bizarre to me is nothing but maybe bizarre <laughs> to you is that people actually you know approach a hotel desk and they hand you their freshly pumped breast milk that's warm oh, and they're just like hi really no well i mean but see i don't know that that's bizarre because the woman needed to do this and it needs to be handled in a certain way and you know needs to be taken care of so what did she want you to do to, with it <laughs> I, I was supposed to actually break the health regulation laws and put it in the kitchen's refrigerator so you know put it in a brown bag and say, Michael's lunch, do not touch. (laughs) Because if you mix that up, that's like not what you want to pour in your tea. It's not a good thing. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Let's move on to question number two. This is from uh, Stephanie in Edmonton, Alberta. Do you consider it rude, Stephanie writes, when the server starts clearing plates away from the table when other people at the table are still eating? Oh, really? (laughs) Yes, because, you know, it, it makes the person who hasn't finished feel... Like, oh, I'm holding everyone up, yeah. and it makes the person who did finish, oh, my God, I'm such a voracious pig. <laughs> but if you're at a restaurant, how do you politely keep them from doing this without, you know, causing a scene? Okay, I I want the good experience. I don't want the drama. And it's really easy when the waiter comes over at the beginning of the night to explain how you'd like the evening to go. Oh, that's a good idea. And I know that sounds like a whole lot of effort, but I like to give them my credit card at the beginning uh-huh. and just say, you know, here's this. When we're done, you know, we're going to have dessert and we're going to have coffee and then just bring the bill already done. And I lay down some ground rules yeah. and so everyone knows what to expect. Yes, but 
but politely. You know, it's, that's the whole thing. When you don't abuse your power, like I'm the king of the mountain when I'm at the table. The person who's helping me in that relationship is beneath me, but I want something from them. I want great service. So, you know what? Sorry, everybody who feels so entitled, but it's our job to get the service person sure. to do a great job also. Do you have like an amazing relationship with waiters? Do they just love you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah and you know what? I just checked into a hotel did I deserve the nicer room? No. Did I pay for it? No. But am I in it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> is there a secret handshake or something? How do they know? Is it just your demeanor? Or do they know? They're like, oh, Michael Fazio. You make eye contact with the person and you engage for 20 seconds. It mm. changes the whole playing field. Hey, I read, read their name tag, not in a threatening way, like I'm going to report you to your manager. <laughs> hey, Susan, how are you? When did your shift start today? Oh, my God. You've been here since seven. You must be exhausted. My name's Fazio. I'm checking in. And she's like, and you're then, checking into you, the honeymoon suite. Uh, yes. You get right. the entire top floor of the hotel. <laughs> right. And, it's you know, it's not the patronizing, like, oh, hello there, little Susan. You know, it's just like, hey, you know what? We've all, including CEOs, had to say, can I help you to somebody? Sure. So everybody's been in this place. We need to figure it out finally. Alec Baldwin. Uh, we have another question. <laughs> this one comes from Debbie in Seattle. She asks, how do I decline a previously accepted invitation from a pretty good friend after learning who the other guests are? I really don't like the other guests. Oh. She doesn't want to go now that she knows who's going to be there. All right. Here's what I would do. It goes back to kind of like the concierge credo of understanding what's the objective and how do you do it with class, with finesse, and no trail of blood behind you. So Debbie doesn't <laughs> like this guy's friends, right? right? That's fair enough. What Debbie needs to do is strip out the emotion and simply say, you know what? You're one of the most special friends in my life, but these other people make me feel really uncomfortable. and. Really? It would just make me feel uncomfortable to be there. So honestly, and, that's weird. Yeah, but on, <laughs> yeah, but professional. Again, it's you strip out the like. I don't like Sam because I think he's obnoxious and he drinks too much. You know, it's like forget. Yeah, it. How about making up an excuse though? Like say, oh, something came up. My mother, she has a wart, and I have to go and deal with it. Oh, the wart excuse is a good one. That yeah, <laughs> yes. I, you know, I didn't even think about the wart <laughs> yeah, excuse. No, that trumps all logic. That answers everything. <laughs> but what I'm saying is, I mean, surely in your role as a concierge, you have on occasion. You you know, told a white lie. Yes, I put the con in concierge. Um, you can trademark that, by the way. Thank you. Um, yes, I've told, I've told plenty of white lies, but that's in a business transaction. This is a friendship transaction. And if, if you want to tell the white lie, I guess it's okay. But, you know, it's just, I don't think it's very smart. Or like just, a ward, just, it's going to keep coming up for Debbie. If oh she doesn't, my. you know, it, talk to this person. You know, oh, if she doesn't, if she doesn't We've had a lot of nice visuals. <laughs> it's a good metaphor. Um, Michael Fazio, we're out of time, but thank you for the etiquette tips. Thanks, guys. eavesdrop. Rising comedian Moshe Kasher's first book comes out this week. It's a memoir called Kasher in the Rye, the true tale of a white boy from Oakland who became a drug addict, criminal, mental patient, and then turned 16. Don't worry, he survived. This week we overhear him read a dinner party worthy tale about one of his low points. My friend DJ heard a rumor of a small room about a mile down the main tunnel that the BART train tore through. A frickin' room! A little frickin' room! It'll be dope! Plus, it's all virgin walls in there, and we could tag the whole place up. Who's in? Donnie, the plan maker, the brains behind our brainless operation, appeared lost in thought. I stared at him, trying to psychically will him to nix the plan, and it looked like he was just about to when he cocked his head to the side and said, I've got weed. We could smoke in there. Preparations began immediately. There were signs everywhere. Stop. Extreme danger in tunnel. No, seriously. This is a bad idea. F*** it then, I guess you're gonna die. We jumped past the razor wire and through the truncheons of secondary security walls and finally, we stood at the mouth of the tunnel, an expanse of blackness swallowing itself into the mountain. This was not a good idea. DJ, perhaps too dumb to be afraid, broke the silence, turning to me and saying, Fats, you, at the back of the line, you'll slow us down. Fats, comply. We began our little march into the tunnel on an emergency platform, barely a foot wide, 
feeling the wall for reassurance, putting one foot in front of the other. I could feel the emptiness of the tunnel drilling into my head from behind. I would have myself, if not for the electric third rail threatening execution. We got about a quarter of a mile in, far enough that we couldn't see the light from where we had entered, when something odd happened. The air behind us got warm, and then sucked away, like a vacuum hose had been clipped onto the other end of the tunnel. We stopped in our tracks. Whoosh, 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 whoosh. The train flew by our faces inches away. Had I been blessed with the nose of my ancestors, strong, prominent, and Jewish, I might have lost it. Despite shaking with fear, I felt a kind of calm. I peered into the windows of the train going by and I could see the shocked faces of people on their commute home, their minds clearly not ready to have pubescent teenage eyes peering back at them from the darkness. I became sort of hypnotized by these people, sitting there, living their lives, flying by, when the screeching of the brakes jolted me out of my calm. The train had come to a complete stop in the middle of the tunnel, and from the front car I saw the conductor leaning out of his window, his brain trying to compute the information he was receiving. In the moment of pause, Donnie got his head straight, and from the front of the line he screamed, RUN! We ran. Now, here an unfortunate thing happened. When everyone flipped around to run out of the tunnel back from whence we came, Guess who was now first in line? That's right, fat ass. I ran as fast as my fat ass could take me, but it was hardly fair. I was shaking with adrenaline, and there was a backdraft from the train still blowing against me. This was a worst-case scenario. From behind me, in the faceless dark, I could hear DJ screaming, Run, you fat boy, run! I ran against the wind, against the shame, against my body. I ran like that. It was like some kind of twisted, bizarro scene from Stand By Me, except the only lesson at the end was that weed trumps life. As the light from the tunnel opened up into the world, I turned back to see Donnie had actually jumped down onto the tracks and was searching for something. Donnie, what the hell are you doing? I dropped the weed, he yelled back. I leaned down and helped Donnie out of the tracks, but only after he had a baggie clinched in his hand. Trembling, we climbed over the fence, and a few minutes later we were crouched in a wooden play structure together and silently smoking. As the weed and the fear and the adrenaline mixed together, we couldn't help but wonder what that little room looked like. I still wish we'd made it. Comedian Moshe Kasher reading from his memoir, Kasher in the Rye. It comes out this week, and he'll be on book tour all month. You're listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media. It's time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where we talk to someone who knows something that we don't, so if the topic comes up in conversation later, we can hold our own. This week, the topic is creativity, and our teacher is Jonah Lehrer. He is an associate editor at Wired Magazine. He's a science journalist, and he has a new book out about creativity. It's called Imagine How Creativity Works. And uh, in the intro to the book, you write, creativity shouldn't be seen as something otherworldly. It shouldn't be thought of as a process reserved for artists and inventors and other creative types. Um, This bums me out immediately because, you know, why do you science-y types have to start poking around with creativity? Like, we leave math and science alone. Why can't you leave us alone? You mean you're worried about me unweaving the rainbow of creativity somehow demystifying? You break open the black box and, and you destroy the romance of it. We we left you guys the money and the math and the jobs. Like, can't we just have our creativity, you know, us bohemians? You know, I honestly don't think you're in any danger of, of creativity becoming demystified. I think creativity remains profoundly mysterious. Okay. Um, you know, I was really just drawn to it because it's so inherently mysterious. You know, when an idea comes to us in the shower, when we have one of these ideas out of the blue, when we have one of these shattering epiphanies, this phenomenal talent, how, how we can invent ideas out of thin air, how we can find connections between seemingly unrelated things. I mean, that, that to me is a pretty wondrous talent. In your book, you use Bob Dylan as kind of a, a way to tell the story of how we have these kind of epiphanies. I think actually the word you use with Bob Dylan is he vomited out these ideas. <laughs> that uh, was his verb. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't dare to, you know, to apply that verb. But, but Dylan, when he would later describe 
the feeling of writing like a Rolling Stone. And, and this is a very particular moment is moment in his career. He's basically quit the music business. So he's yeah. The spring of 1965 is returning from the UK tour, and he is so fed up with the fans, with the critics. He feels burned out. He thinks he has nothing left to write, nothing left to sing. And so he drives his motorcycle up to Woodstock and doesn't even bring his guitar. He's just going to write novels and paint. And then after a couple of days there, he he describes this feeling of he's just got this this itch, this this itch to write. And so he this be- thing he needs to do, yeah. This the thing he needs to do. And so he gets out his pencil and his notepad and he begins to write. And it doesn't stop for several hours. And he later describes it he's feeling like he's just vomiting forth these words. And he ends up writing more than twenty five pages. And somewhere within those twenty five pages are the iconic lyrics for Like a Rolling Stone. Which many consider the best song ever written in rock and roll. Yeah, yeah. Certainly one of the most influential rock and roll songs of all time. Transformed the genre. Six minutes long. The lyrics were vague and abstract and nonsensical. And and yet it worked. All right. Well, so go ahead and ruin that moment for us. and (laughs) And tell us a little bit about the science behind it or what we're starting to learn about maybe how that worked. What was particularly interesting about, I think, this moment in Bob Dylan's career is is that it really came when he quit. And this is a you know this is a typical precursor before we have epiphanies we often feel incredibly stuck we feel like we've hit the wall we feel like this problem is impossible yeah and so then what happens is is the brain does this kind of amazing thing where it begins searching within its own file cabinets in the most unexpected places and if you really want me to ruin it that quiet voice seems to be coming from a part of the brain called the superior interior temporal gyrus <laughs> it's a bit of cortex just behind the ear in the right hemisphere it's yeah. it's a part of the brain that's been previously associated with things like the processing of jokes and the interpretation of metaphors. And, and, and what those talents have in common with moments of insight is that they force us to draw together seemingly unrelated things. Well, I want to talk about something that almost, it sounds initially that like it's in opposition to what you were just explaining about Bob Dylan's process. And this is uh, you discussed the poet W.H. Auden. Um, who focused relentlessly and kind of exhibited with with the help of amphetamines we learn, but he exhibited this this sort <laughs> don't of don't try this at home, kids. Don't try this at home. The idea that comes through there is really his grit, his his focus on his poems, how he yeah. keeps refining them, refining them, and cleaning them and trimming them. And that stands. It sounds a little bit different than kind of Bob Dylan finally pausing and it all coming out. Yeah. So W. H. Auden, what I was interested in is he moves to America in 1939. An editor introduces him to benzedrine, this you know this amphetamine pill. And and then he starts just pouring out one perfect poem after another. And when you look at the Auden poems that have been most anthologized, they're almost all from this one three- to five-year period. Mm-hmm. And I think one thing Ben's dream, one thing Amphetamine allowed him to do was to really invest those extra hours in refining his poetry. I mean, he'd spend, you know, he described spending 10 hours on a single line to get the metaphor right. Um, and, and, you know, when you look at the, you know, the pharmacology of benzedrine, what amphetamines do to our brain, that begins to make sense. What amphetamines do is they basically increase the muscles of attention. They make it easier to stay focused for hours at a time on seemingly very tedious details. Yeah. You know, and for me, this, this captures certainly a less romantic part of the creative process. I mean, I think we love to celebrate our epiphanies. We love to celebrate those breakthroughs in the shower. But, you know, most creative people also describe, when you really press them, the fact that even their best ideas still require edits. Even their big epiphanies still require lots and lots of work to make them perfect. I just imagined a Tashin book of all the showers in the world where great things have happened, great ideas. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it is one of those, when you talk to people who, you know, who create for a living... They always return to the shower. Everyone's got their shower anecdote. And I think part of it is because showers are so relaxing. We're being pelted with hot water. But I also think, you know, in the 21st century, it's also the one place we can take our damn phones. (laughs) Once upon a time, you dressed so fine. Threw the bumps of dime in your prime. Then you. So, Rico, basically, if companies want to increase creativity, they need to replace their cubicles with shower stalls. Oh. Yeah. Bring your bring your shower cap and your back rub yeah. thingy. Or they could encourage their employees to quit and move to Woodstock. I would follow why, that advice. Why don't they do that? <laughs> uh, people coming up, we hear a new song from the band Tan Lines, and author Rick Moody tells us how he got so successful. I was instructed by weirdos. Plus, speaking of weird, I eat snail eggs, everyone, when the dinner party returns.
Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we'll hear from our guest of honor, author Rick Moody. But first, it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we talk about the best part of a dinner party, the food. Yes, and Brendan, in the last few months, we've covered a lot of trends or dishes that might seem odd at first blush. Would you agree? Might you be speaking of uh, tree bark? Why, yes. Blood. The use of tree bark <laughs> and blood as ingredients comes to mind. <laughs> Spicy tuna and Doritos, maybe? Also odd. Yeah. Yes. So the other day when I told you I had heard about chefs experimenting with escargot caviar, were you really surprised? I actually was. That's true. Good. So was I. <laughs> escargot caviar, that would be snail eggs, are available. I understand Man. the French and the Japanese have been eating them for a while, but I could only find evidence of a couple of chefs using them in America. Turns out one of the few places to buy it is here in L.A. at a place called Beverly Hills Caviar. Is that like the size of a Costco? It is. <laughs> it's actually rather surprisingly small. Okay. But I paid a visit to the owner, Kelly Shiner, and I started by telling her how most people reacted when I told them about this stuff. Basically, yuck. <laughs> like snail eggs, like really, you're going to eat those? And I'm assuming, because you've got a lot of very high-end caviar in this room, that there's not a yuck factor involved here. No, but it is an acquired taste. That means very few people in this world can actually eat it and appreciate the way that it tastes. Um, I hope I'm one of those. I hope so, but maybe if I'll talk enough about it and say all those fancy words to you, then maybe you get to appreciate it. It's like wine. Oh, you're going to drink that Chardonnay that no one has ever touched for the past 25 years and it has that great earthy blah, 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 blah. And then you get to appreciate it. Yeah, if it's exclusive enough, then I'll, I'll try to like it. Exactly. Especially if you pay 95 an ounce, then you will end up liking it a lot. It is $95 an ounce. How does that compare to other caviars? Price-wise, it's in between because uh, you have, for example, the beluga that can cost up to 500 an ounce and some sturgeons that can cost 70 an ounce. So wh why is it worth so much money? I mean, I think of snails. It's not like it's hard to find snails. Well, a snail doesn't live very long, and then it makes a certain amount of eggs. So by the time it's dead, it only laid about like 20 grams in the entire lifetime. And we're talking about specific snails that live in certain conditions in France. It's how to find them in the wild, and they don't like to appear when it's very hot. So it's usually when it's getting dark, and then it's really hard to find them. So you've got very rare snails that don't lay a whole lot of eggs. And they have to be imported from France, <laughs> because only the French people would actually uh, go after snails. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so uh, what you were saying that it's an acquired taste. I've, I've had caviar before. How is it different than you know regular caviar taste-wise? Right. So in a way, the snail eggs taste like vegetables. Really? There's like a veg vegetal, I guess, earthy quality, right? Because they're coming from animals that live in the ground. It tastes like grass water from the finest grass that you can find in the cleanest place where you will see Shrek. So fairy tale quality grass water is what you're saying. Correct. All right. Well, you've got, it looks like you have sort of extremely fetishistic gear here for me to eat this stuff out of. These are, it looks like abalone shells that I'm going to be eating this off of. Actually, these are mother of pearl um, spoons and plates that come from the deep ocean. Mother of pearl. Mm -hmm. Why would I eat caviar off of this? Um, just think about it. Would you rather eat, you know, peas or corn out of the can that you got it out of? Oh, do you really want it on a plate where it kind of... Of course, but these are like especially nice plates. They're mother of pearl plates. Yeah, but, you know, people that can afford caviar can afford nice plates. There you go. In the server, you can find the little tiny one ounce escargot that I'm going to sacrifice for this interview. It's a little one ounce tin. I feel that you need to see for yourself how it looks like. Wow, they are, they are like kind of tiny little pearls. It makes sense that you'd serve it on mother of pearl. They're like little tiny balls. I'm used to seeing much finer grain caviar. They look a little golden. Yeah, they're maybe beige gold kind of. But when you eat them, even though they look very delicate, you can actually almost taste the pop. Oh yeah, they like pop in your mouth. Yeah, try it. All right, here we go. Oh yeah, 
and I do feel it popping. It's very salty like uh, caviar, but you're right. It's completely different flavor. It's not, obviously, it's not fishy at all. It is kind of like earthy. You're right. It's like it's been filtered through grass or something. So how new is this? Have they been using it for a long time elsewhere? Is it just new to us or is it new to the world? Um, I would say that it's very new to everybody. They probably did it in the past 10 years. You need to remember, French people like to be ahead on everything that has to do with food. So they were eating the snails anyway. They noticed that those snails also lay eggs. All they needed is really to figure out what to do with it. Well, like, so how is, what is the most common way that people are thinking of using this? So one chef actually uses it inside, you know, those vodka shots, and then he poured some cold cucumber soup, a mint leaf on top of it, and three eggs on the top. So it was almost more of like a little shooter, kind of, the way that you would use an oyster almost. Correct. And he used it this way because a lot of his vegetarian, not vegan, vegetarian clients wanted it. Because vegetarians will not eat meat, but they will eat eggs as long as the eggs are laid. Right. So they wouldn't want an oyster shooter because that's an animal, but you could actually eat the egg of a snail. Correct. Because this is not like sturgeon caviar. You don't have to kill the fish to get the eggs. Do you think this is really going to catch on? Because I've, uh, you know, I mean, even regular caviar isn't that widely used. Um, this is not going to be an easy sell. Even in New York, they don't have enough people that love snails to eat it. So I think you have to educate people about snails and get them to like that first. But let me tell you this. I would eat escargot caviar any day, but never snails. I just don't like the sliminess. I just hate it. And if there is anything good about those eggs is that they're not slimy. They're very watery. And they won't turn into grown-up snails, which you will then have to eat. And Brendan, I found out mother-of-pearl spoons, like I used, are actually the traditional way to serve any caviar. Because people used to think that metal utensils would alter the taste. It looks like there is some disagreement about this now, but still, you know, the pearl plates are pretty. It's interesting. And of course, mother of pearl is so fancy, it distracts people from the fact that they're eating, I don't know, snail eggs? Yes. Maybe? <laughs> There's that too. <laughs> uh, Which I still don't believe exists, even after that story. People, <laughs> if you like learning about odd, yet actually pleasant things, I have to say, like snail caviar, we are tweeting about it daily. Follow us on Twitter at Dinner Party DNLD. Our guest of honor this week is celebrated author Rick Moody. He's known for his best-selling novel, The Ice Storm, which went on to be a major motion picture. His books and stories have garnered loads of prizes. He's also a musician, and he writes essays about music. A collection of those essays came out this week. It's called On Celestial Music and Other Adventures in Listening. So, Rick, I'm going to start with the question we ask all of our guests, which is, what question are you tired of being asked? Well, there are two, and they're both so tiresome I couldn't distinguish between them because (laughs) I would try to root out each one from my life. But the first one is, do you like the Ice Storm movie? (laughs) And the second one is, of course, everybody's most hated question, where do you get your ideas? Well, when I ask musicians that question... Um, and many of your peers, when asked them what question you're tired of being asked, uh, the, one of the answers is, and this is from Yola Tango, uh, Stephen Merritt, Carrie Brownstein, who's in Wild Flag, they all had a version of, I'm tired of a- being asked, what does my music sound like? And uh, they have different ver- versions of why, and I think Ira from Yola Tango was like, you know, I made an album to articulate what my music sounds like. I can only explain it through music. Yet this book is actually, in some ways, an attempt to explain music through words. It seems possible to me. I mean, I totally understand and am completely sort of consonant with the argument that what's great about music is that it explicates emotions without relying on words. I I totally buy that, and it's one of the reasons that I like to play a little bit, which I don't do very well, but I try to do it. Um, And... So it provides an outlet for me that's other than what I do when I'm sitting down to write something. On the other hand, I honestly believe that literature is capable of describing everything. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't do my job at all. You know, mm-hmm. So especially those moments 
if you're writing a novel dramatically, you want to try to describe things that are uh, sort of highly resonant for people. Those are often moments that people say, words failed me, you know, death, divorce, you know, war, adultery, whatever. All those moments that are most difficult to talk about turn out to be moments where literature rises to the occasion. So writing about music is no different, even though part of what we love about it is that it exists apart from yeah. words. Perhaps the highest art form, maybe, is radio where you're talking and there's music playing underneath it, right? You have both. I'm, you know, that's almost <laughs> Wagnerian as a formulation right there. Yeah. This book is, um, you know, it's like 14, 15 essays about music. You, you, a couple times in the book you mention how much you enjoy talking about music, how you, if you find a, a person who will talk to you about music and you could stay up all night doing this. Um, do you still have a lot of those moments? I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the sort of depressing part of middle age, um, is perhaps that one is more attached to the older songs than the newer songs. And I regret that in a way, but I still feel, you know, I'm a passionate listener to reissues and so on. So I'm still discovering old stuff that I love, but it's less frequent now that I'll hear, you know, the new song by, yeah. you know, Animal Collective and think yeah, that yeah. I should lie down in front of a truck to <laughs> declare my passion for it. Yeah. But you also, it, it, I mean, it sounds like, uh, or you discuss in one of your essays how there's an evolution in your musical taste. I think a lot of people share this, but you talk about, you know, the kind of 4-4 four, four beat-driven music that's important as a young person. There's maybe a sexual energy to that. And then you get into Meredith Monk and kind of much more avant-garde music. Can you talk a little bit about that journey and where you're at on that journey now? I don't know if it's the case for everyone, but for me, I just got tired of things that sounded like all the other things after a point. And the more you feel that way, the further out you go until things that, you know, when you were 16 or 17 might have sounded deeply strange don't exactly sound deeply strange. There's a new... Captain Beefheart record out right now that that's a album that he made in the mid 70s that was suppressed and I have very passionate feelings about Captain Beefheart I really love him but he doesn't sound like anything else on earth I mean yeah. the, the time signatures alone are completely unpredictable but at this point now in my life that sounds like pop music to me <laughs> in a way you know um, just because the further out and the more quixotic you are about trying to find new things um the more open you are. But has it has that happened with literature for you? It was sort of a different journey because I was I was instructed by weirdos from the first, <laughs> you know, cuz I went in to, writing. Yeah, yeah, I went to Brown University, you know, and I got there in 1979. It was a hotbed of experimental writing. So, uh, you know, from my earliest undergraduate years, I was reading stuff that other people thought was kind of way out. Yeah. And it's possible that my music experiences are sort of a refraction of what I was already thinking about with respect to literature. Yeah. And now you're like, have you seen this Dick and Jane? It's incredible. Dick and Jane. Outrageous. <laughs> the repetition a... is so mesmerizing. <laughs> it's so profound. <laughs> um, well, well, there's another question we ask each of our guests, which is, tell us something we don't know, and it can be about you, or it can be just an interesting fact. So, here's my strange little thing for today which is that i recently did a had a dna test done um, really on you on me <laughs> uh for that site 23andme which is kind of a sort of weird dna obsessed website that was, i don't know what it is it was started by one of the google guys wives who's a genetic researcher okay right? and here's the crazy thing i'm one percent asian Really? <laughs> yes. And you just found this out? I just found this out. I mean, I guess I can see that. No, I'm the Uber Wasp. Oh, everyone yeah. would say yeah, I'm yeah, the that's Uber right. Wasp. Connecticut, you know? yes. Yeah, Ice Storm Guy, Wasp, yeah, yeah, Wasp, yeah, yeah, Wasp. Yeah. So I'm probably 1% Native American is what I am. So it said that you're you're 1% Asian and then you immediately leapt to Native American. Is that pretty much because... In the United States and you have this, or if you're of European ancestry, there are really only two likely outcomes. Either you have some Native American, because in North America that's primarily what Asian is, mm -hmm. um, or it's Attila the Hun. But the thing about Attila the Hun, who, you know, pillaged enough of Europe that he snuck into a lot of the gene pool. <laughs> yeah. Um, is that the, the, that won't show up because it's been so watered down. Do you feel a little different now moving through the world? Yeah. 
I mean, it's crazy. It's fascinating. Well, you seem like a fairly enlightened guy, so I'm guessing race wasn't something you thought a lot about until now. But this probably changes how you understand things. It just Different doesn't people. mean what we thought it meant. Yeah. You know? and, and it's so apparent that <clears throat> the surface layer is absolutely simplistic and reductive. If you look at things this way, you're an idiot. Completely. <laughs> uh, this is all, but this could be good news. This could mean a sequel to the ice storm from the perspective of <laughs> a Native American. <laughs> this Native American who was in that same... Right. We'll, we'll look for that coming soon. <laughs> Enrico, for those who don't know, this is a Captain Beefheart tune playing right now. Of course. Yes. yes. Definitely something you can stay up all night talking about. Yeah, like I might say, man, this music is total genius. And then the other person would be like, turn down that racket, I'm trying to sleep. And that's the dinner party for this week, folks. And I would folks. be like, shut up and go to sleep. You would be like that, wouldn't you? I Jackson would. Musker is the assistant producer of our show. <laughs> Thanks this week to Brendan Willard, Chris Clark, Peter Clowney, Craig Curtis, and Judy McAlpin. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this weekend's much quieter dinner parties. And today we've got the latest track from neo-new wave band Tan Lines. Wow. Neo-new wave. You like that? That's good. It's a, it's a fancy way of saying new, new wave. Yeah. Make, that means your haircut would be normal if you did that. <laughs> anyway, Tan Lines is a band from Brooklyn. Their debut album, Mixed Emotions, came out this week on the label True Panther. Here's a track from it called All of Me. Bueno, bon appetit. Galliano. And I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And man, I'm tired of how we've been ending the show. I think we need to yeah. you know, do something more creative. You're right. Let's see. I got it!